this church and the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. wish I could preach without a mask, but this is not a week for leaders to give themselves exceptions. And I'm aware <clears throat> of the little blessings of this time. I mean, if Miwa's fingers still work to play the <laughs> piano, we get this beautiful breeze and I wonder if it'll show up in the sound, but the birds were singing with the singers during that piece. I don't know if we inspired them or they just joined in for fun. I read a book on dreams last week. It was written by one of my husband's late uncles, a man who studied dreams and dream work in the 1970s and then used to lead all kinds of workshops for all kinds of groups from corporate executives to nuns. I read it and for the first few days afterwards, I kept trying to remember to do what he said the readers should do, which of course is to write down your dreams, every detail you can remember the moment you wake up. We've all been having lots of vivid dreams in this COVID pandemic time. There have even been articles written about it and speculation about how and why. After a couple days of waiting, even just a couple minutes after I woke up, before I sat down to try and record my dreams, at which point I had completely forgotten them, I did finally one morning, barely able to walk straight, just having woken up and turned off my alarm, I went to my desk and I wrote down whatever I could remember. And what I could remember was disturbing and strangely apropos. I'll spare you all the details, but the salient ones are these. That in the dream, I was headed towards some big event. I was doing that along with this enormous caravan of people. Something important was about to happen and I, I knew I had a role it wasn't a central role, I knew, but it was one I assumed I would find out when I arrived at the place where all of this would happen. The caravan arrived, but as it did so along one side of the road, lined up, afraid, were people, men, women, children, a row of solid people standing like a warning with their wrists tied together and their ankles. And around me too, there were flatbed trucks, two of them that I saw also filled with people tied up and stacked like wood. And in the dream, I knew this, that there was this dictator that we all lived under who was going to do something that night to make a point, but what we didn't know. As we arrived and unpacked, I went looking for a few things, a hairbrush, a change of clothes to disguise the wear of the road and to prepare for this event. 
And in the back room, while I was rummaging through my suitcase and trying to find my things, a man came up to me, a man I, I knew, and he handed me a box, an ordinary cardboard box, a little worse for wear, its top flopping open to reveal that it was filled with old books and pamphlets. Looking at the titles and without any words exchanged between us, I knew the way you know in dreams things, that what he'd handed me was actually this box of seditious writings from a previous insurrection and that they were mine to protect and to use and that if I were caught with them, I would be in danger. Shortly thereafter, I awoke. To wake from that dream was a relief, of course, but not entirely. It doesn't take a PhD in dream work to figure out what that dream was touching on and what I was worried about and wondering about that it brought to the surface, right? The man who is increasingly usurping power and waking up our dictator worries. He got sick this week. We pray for his recovery because we wish no one evil, even those who have done great harm, because it would be bad for our souls to do so. But that, that he has been dancing actively with thoughts and plans that seem to be about our further destruction, that, that has felt evident in the air, to me at least. Ready to call out the proud boys and blow harder, at least into the embers of racial tension and hatred sown over 500, 400 years that we are seeking to repair some of us. That he's planning to upend However, he might structure the procedures, the trust in our election, the counting of mail-in ballots, maybe even hoping to toss those decisions to local election boards, to places in swing states filled with Republicans. All of this was starting to look like and feel like far too likely a possibility. All of it, all of it undermining a system of government that is more than his little drama and a nation that is not his narcissistic toy. In the dream, of course, I am somehow headed to be part of how all this will play out, and you are too, of course. Unclear about my role and what it will be. And that too is how it's felt lately. But in the dream, there is this one last part, right? There is this box that I'm handed in the green room while looking for lipstick as I prepare to walk on stage. A box of old books and pamphlets handed the evidence and inspiration and records of a tradition of challenge and courage that has been called upon in moments just like the one I find myself in. 
So the fact that this week, on September 30th, was the 250th anniversary of that miracle story that we told this morning, the one of at least one historic universalist arriving in these United States. Well, that feels momentous to me. The faith tradition of that broken-hearted John Murray, reluctant, but reclaiming his, his right and call to preach on that fateful day, it feels important. He'd go on to found the first Universalist church in America. He'd be central in founding the denomination. And the Universalist tradition would catch like a virus on these shores. By the 1830s, it would be the ninth largest denomination in America. Universalists would found universities like Tufts and Caltech and St. Lawrence, the private school, ironically, where my own husband went for high school. They would do all this, though actually the Universalists boasted far less of their own academic prowess than their future spouses, the Unitarians. They were just powerful, devoted institutionalists and strategic. The first congregation that I served as an ordained minister was the Universalist National Memorial Church in Washington, D.C. It was built as the cathedral to universalism in America, just maybe a mile down 16th Street from the White House. By the time I was serving there, the idea that Whatever God inhabited the universe, if that's a useful metaphor or reality for you, that whatever God inhabited the universe had neither constructed nor permitted it to be a world in which souls would be punished, tortured, or left alienated for any period of time in something called a hell. Well, that idea had gone almost entirely out of favor. I mean, there were still and are a few fire and brimstone Christians in the world for sure, but universalism's main heresy became mainstream Protestant theology, and its success in promulgating the idea was also something that I think left it floundering a bit in the world for a while. I mean, what do you do when the whole world agrees with you? Except, except that there was this underlying part to universalism that was about why, why there was no hell, about this belief, this foundational one against which all other beliefs would be tested and on which everything else would be built and rest. And that was that there was, there is this force that animates the world, this force of pure and unbounded love. And that our job as human beings in this life was to stay connected to that force at our core and be guided by it. That our job as humans in this life was to emulate it. That our social and political agenda 
the one dictated by our faith, was always to be about seeing where there was somewhere a, a circle that was about love and acceptance and respect and care, but left some people outside it. And our call was to work to have the world see the necessity to bring those people outside it in. Our work, in other words, was to be the champion of big love, the biggest love the world, the human heart could imagine. And to do that until that vision broke through all barriers of ignorance and fear and hate, broke right into incarnated being, beloved community, heaven on earth, the kingdom of God, these were all metaphors for the moment that that vision became a reality. That box then of books and, and pamphlets, seditious and worn, that had animated some work of some previous uprising, previous revolution, the kind that got you into trouble, into good trouble, as John Lewis famously and rightly named it, that box in my dream could easily have been the writings and life stories of universalists through time. Because big love meant means that you stick your nose in all the places that people wanted you to think didn't matter and argue for all the people, for the natural places, for all things they told you weren't any of your business and not worth your time. And it was because of that, that theological imperative in universalism, that universalists went into prisons to demand fair treatment, into places where people who were mentally ill were treated like animals, into the call for abolition and women's right to vote and the civil rights movement, all kinds of civil rights movements that we went uninvited, unwelcome by those who would protect the walls of too small a circle of love. Now this is not a narrative of perfection. Some of our people were astoundingly prophetic. Some were late adapters, you might say. The second woman ordained in the United States was a universalist woman, but let's be clear, the women didn't get the best pulpits for a long, long time. And modern Unitarian Universalists like the Reverend Mark Morrison Reed and his works, including among them his book, Black Pioneers in a White Denomination, and his other book, Darkening the Doorways, Black Trailblazers and Missed Opportunities in Unitarian Universalism. He is just one person who lays out some of our less proud history, particularly around African-Americans who came wishing to be part of our religious communities to serve it with their lives, and still do, only to find a tradition whose white folks haven't done their work enough, realizing how we defend still some walls that are too small and justify exclusion.
still. Still, my friends, we are the inheritors of this tradition to live up to the imaginative faith venture of drawing the circle wider, of seeing who and what is indeed our business and to launch into wall-breaking and rebuilding revolutions of heart and policy and mind. And the work is never done. The heritage of all that, it's what flows down onto the steps of this church on Wednesday mornings during rush hour, even these days of illness and risk. It's why Captain Hinckley started the first trust and endowment and left money for the worthy poor. It's why Star King drove his body into exhaustion and the grave. And all the stories behind those framed photos of each Reiner Award winner and thousands of other legacies that run through this place and through our lives of faith right now. David White, who sometimes leads poetry workshops in this sanctuary and in our center, he has a poem entitled, Sometimes. Excerpting from it, he writes that sometimes you come to a place whose only task is to trouble you with tiny but frightening requests. Requests to stop what you're doing right now and to stop what you are becoming while you do it. Questions that can make or unmake a life. Questions that have patiently waited for you. Questions that have no right to go away. I think every life leads us to such a place. Every era has its clearing, which when you reach them, holds the questions that are laid out for you unapologetically waiting for you to take your quest up. The box laid a little ragged from where, flopping open to show you what is always inside, some old words, old paper, tales of other lives, of spirited, mandated adventures to keep you company on the journey, your journey, which will be added to the legacy when you're gone. Each of us called to do our part in this great relay race of social, ideological, societal, human evolution which is not so much about the evolution of the human animal, but the human anima, that great Latin word for spirit and breath and air, the numinous. People have been asking me, family and friends, and many of you, how I feel about the lead up to today's meeting and the vote and my decision to put myself up for a vote that would bind us, this congregation and me, in a special relationship, the special relationship of minister and congregation, 
in our tradition in which we choose each other to serve the mission of this place and the larger mission of holding one another accountable for lives of meaning and courage through sickness and in health, richer and poorer. I said to someone, it felt to me a bit like a marriage decision and she thankfully agreed, though I've had colleagues tell me that that's a really horrible analogy to use and I don't really know why because I can't get past it and it feels a lot like that to me. Which is why I think I'll tell you how I feel. I agreed to put myself up for a vote because I would like to be in that life with you, the members of this community. And I don't think I could pick a richer, sweeter group to walk that journey with. I don't think I could be in better company, and I'm not saying that to win votes. Plus, like you, I've had over three years of looking under the hood or up close to know something about what I am speaking about. But here's why I'm more measured in my approach to the vote. At every wedding I do, I think, if you too knew what you were really agreeing to and what it would ask of you and how it would change you, you, you wouldn't be so focused on the candy-covered almond party favors and the napkin colors. You'd be joyful, but you'd be heavy with awe and a sense of the weightiness of it all, like like really what you're doing right now is you're standing at a bluff and you're ready to push off together in your vessel into the wide open semi-charted waters of a vast ocean for places not yet revealed because that's what this will mean. The questions that await us could we have predicted what the last three years, let alone the last six months, have asked of us? Does anyone here think we have any idea what we will face together in the near term or the longer unfolding of time? No. And we know it will be hard. That's what we do know. And we know it will be interesting it always is, and we know it will change us, and we know it will grow us, and we know we will have moments of insane, wonderful joy, and we know we will have heartbreak. And most of all, we know we'll be in good company. For me, that's what the vote and the vows are about, always. Choosing the company not with any real idea of what it will ask of you or me, of us. Except, of course, this, that there will be among our maps and compasses the guiding star of big love, the biggest love we can imagine working miracles when it chooses, begging us to work to draw the circle wider until the whole world is inside its embrace. And so my friends, through us, through us we're called to live what the poet cooperative in fleshed writes about.
This love that tells its story. This love that embraces everyone, every creature, every creation. It knows us intimately, it holds us collectively. It transcends every boundary that we seek to confine it within. It will not tolerate violence in its name. It does no harm. It only sets free. From this dream of love, big and gorgeously uncompromising, may we never wake. And may the bold questions that wait for us patiently and demand everything most worthy of us to answer them, may they never, never go away. And may we walk in blessing this journey of life, made more blessed because we are together in it. That's my prayer for the day. May it be so. Amen. The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.